This week on the Backtable Podcast. There's a lot of folks will come in with somatic testing. So they'll go and get their tumor removed and they have like foundation one or something done, Keras, one of these other ones. And they find that they have a VHL mutation in their kidney tumor, which is obviously we know, you know, one of the fundamental events of clear cell. So often patients will get confused. They think, oh, do I have VHL syndrome? Because they'll Google it and say, oh, VHL, and then they'll find this whole disease. So what's happening now more and more is urologists are having to explain to patients, no, 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 that was on your tumor not on your blood or your saliva. And so you have to uh, kind of educate them on that. So I think it is important for urologists to understand what you're, what kind of information you're getting from a tumor report versus what you're getting from a germline testing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Ari Hakimi from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Nirmesh Singla from Johns Hopkins University. Ari, Nirmesh, how are you guys doing today? Doing great. Great to be here, Aditya. Well, thanks so much. I This is a special episode for me. Ari trained me. As a fellow at Sloan Kettering, we've got a lot of great memories together, and I certainly acquired extensive knowledge about kidney cancer from Ari. And Nirmesh and I have had a very similar path, residents at UT Southwestern, fellows at Memorial, and I'd like to think in some form or fashion, I helped recruit Nirmesh to UT Southwestern. So thrilled to have you guys. So I thought, you know, when I was kind of thinking about this episode for prostate cancer, even over the course of our training and our professional lives, there's really been a shift and increased emphasis on germline testing. It's gone from very niche populations to broad, broad indications from being done by medical geneticists, largely being done by urologists. And maybe I'll just ask, do you think that something similar is happening or is coming when it comes to kidney cancer? I think kidney cancer is interesting because it's kind of been known for a long time, you know, that there's a genetic component to it. We've typically quoted patients about 5% of all kidney tumors are inherited based on really kind of seminal work that was done from the NCI with uh, Marston and Bert Zabar, where they first found kidney cancer genes. You know, the way they found VHL was really through identifying families of kidney cancer. And that was back in the 80s when they really had very crude technologies to do that. So I think there's always been this kind of awareness that kidney cancer has a genetic component to it. But I think what's come out now is the spectrum of it and the uh, diversity of where you see people having familial genes. Yeah, I, I think that kidney cancer is uh, particularly unique among the spectrum of cancers that we treat as urologists, largely because, you know, like Ari was saying, we've known for quite some time that there's a, a small subset of patients that are linked to hereditary syndromes. Perhaps among urologic cancers, I think that kidney cancer happens to have that uh, unique aspect that you don't often tend to see in other cancer forms. And so germline testing um, certainly does play an important role for patients that may fit the bill, that make you suspect there to be a hereditary component. I think that's interesting, you know, so the numbers I kind of have in my head for prostate cancer, you know, metastatic prostate cancer, 12% is kind of what I think about the incidence of heritable prostate cancer. And for localized, it's right around 5%. And if I'm hearing correctly, that's the ballpark number, number for kidney as well. So I think historically, yes, that was the number we gave. I think now you're starting to see more and more testing being done across populations. So initially, 
I think testing was restricted to people that had strong family histories and or, you know, multifocal tumors. So you were kind of enriching for certain populations and also kind of, you know, identifying groups of people. But what's happening more and more now are people are getting commercial testing or there's like large scale efforts. For example, like at Memorial, we were doing this kind of on everybody for a while just to see. And so you're seeing rates that are closer to, to 10%, 11, 12%. And then if you find patients that are particularly high risk, you know, if they have specific histologies that are consistent with suspicious features, you're finding those rates to be even higher, 20, 25%, depending on how you select the patients. Yeah. So you mentioned VHL. I think for anybody that has anything to do with urology, that's kind of our prototypical hereditary cancer predisposition syndrome. And of course, for kidney, maybe I'll just ask you, just so we're kind of on the same page, common kidney cancer predisposition syndromes, and then maybe extended spectrum. Norm, you want to take a stab at it? Absolutely. So you already highlighted kind of the sort of quintessential kidney cancer hereditary syndrome, which is VHL or, or von Hippel-Lindau. There are others as well. In fact, there are quite a few, upwards of even 10, but the one that we most commonly cite include Berthog-Dubé syndrome, hereditary papillary renal carcinoma, and hereditary leiomyomatosis and renal cell carcinoma. Tuberous sclerosis is another one. And, and then there are some others that are also less common, but have also been described. Okay. So yeah, those are kind of the big four, big five that I kind of think, you know, right off the bat, then you've got your less common ones. But for somebody that doesn't think about this frequently, the low-hanging fruit with VHL, you're asking about pancreatic tumors, epidermal cysts. What are your just kind of major criteria that you keep in your head? Yeah. So for, for VHL, you know, there, there are a number of extrarenal manifestations that we know of uh, that are associated with the syndrome with a variable degree of penetrance, but you hit on some of the, the common ones, pancreatic islet cell tumors or pancreatic cysts, pheochromocytomas, retinal uh, hemangioblastomas or CNS uh, hemangioblastomas, epididymal cystadenomas, uh, endolymphatic sac tumors. Those I would say are predominantly the ones that come to mind or you maybe could think of some additional ones, but you can see the spectrum is pretty wide. Yeah. And I think identifying patients and recognizing that they have a variable penetrance is really important. Not everybody will have the same manifestations. And obviously there's always the founder. So even taking a good family history will not always give it away. I just had a patient a few months ago who presented very kind of classically with a lot of the symptoms, but had no family history whatsoever. So that was uh, kind of an interesting for me as like seeing a founder. Okay. HLRCC, you know, just the kind of young women coming in, making sure to look at the CT scan, scrolling down through the uterus. Beyond that, uh, what are you doing, Ari? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the key things for me has been uh, a few things. As you point out, women are more common. You, there's a racial distribution. So we see more African-Americans with HLRCC for whatever reason. And that's been kind of an interesting finding. We've also seen a, a spectrum of, you know, classically, these were thought to be just very high grade tumors where they were metastatic with very bad morphology and nasty looking tumors on the, under the microscope. More recently, there have been a, an entity of HLRCC or at least FH deficient tumors that are actually more lower grade. So having a good pathologist that's on the ball about that, they can still have the same germline manifestations, but they may not have as an aggressive tumor. That's kind of an interesting finding. But I always do, when I, whenever I speak to young patients with tumors, I always ask them about their history, not only of, of kidney cancer, but if I'm suspicious, I definitely will follow up about uterine leiomyomas in their family 
And one of the, the key giveaways is if they've had several family members with early hysterectomies for kind of a brutal bleeding from their uterus. I mean, that's kind of one of the, the hallmark family syndromes that you'll, you'll hear described. Yeah, I think that's good intel. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, when somebody comes with a renal mass, the extent of my family history is typically, do you have any family history of kidney cancer? I'm not really digging into pancreatic cancers and gynecologic conditions. Do you think that, I mean, should that be done? You know, kidney cancer history, is there like a bare minimum? I mean, for prostate cancer, breast cancer, endometrial cancer, lymphomas, leukemias, you know, those are stuff that I ask routinely. Would you advise any kind of extended family history? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, what we're doing here now, and I think what people that are kind of focused on this are doing now more, is definitely asking a little bit more of a broader spectrum of their history. We know it's not commonly associated with a lot of other cancers per se. Many of the things that NERM had mentioned in VHL are benign tumors, technically. So some patients don't even recognize them as cancers. I would mention one particular syndrome that's recently been described and is, is becoming more commonly reported now is the BAP1 tumor predisposition syndrome. So that's probably the, I would say Nirmish mentioned the top five. I think number six would be BAP1. And that's really associated with two specific types of cancers. That's uveal melanomas, which are very, very rare. Those are eye, eye melanomas and mesotheliomas. So it's almost a diagnostic history if the patients say that they have family members with mesothelium and they weren't exposed to asbestos and they come in with a kidney mass, you should be kind of very, very much on guard about that. Or if they have a uveal melanoma history. So, you know, we do include that now in our specific history asking about that, as well as, of course, some of the dermatologic manifestations of a lot of these cancers, some skin findings. But from terms of cancers, we do ask about those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can only imagine that as we start to have more widespread germline testing, as you mentioned, that there's going to be newer ones that pop up. I mean, there's chromosome three translocations and MITF cancer syndromes, among others. And, and maybe just to kind of keep it somewhat digestible, we'll focus on the, on the initial four or five. So family history, you know, kidney cancers, first degree relatives, second degree relatives. Is that a thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you know, like we were chatting earlier, you're probably going to strike out more than you're going to strike in when it comes to soliciting family history. As we know, sporadic kidney cancers tend to comprise the majority of kidney cancers that walk into the office. But that being said, I think it behoves us, you know, as urologic oncologists to do our duty. And even though the numbers that are quoted uh, for the incidence of hereditary RCCs are maybe five to 8%, like Ari was saying, it, it may just be a detection issue and, and maybe we're not soliciting the information we need or maybe we're not doing enough germline testing just like the era of cross-sectional imaging has led to a number of new diagnoses of incidental renal masses in a likewise manner, trying to uh, dig a little bit deeper for the patients that come in the office with renal mass may lend itself to being able to diagnose these uh, more, more of these uh, syndromic associations with RCC. Yeah. One of the interesting things that we've seen now, and I think this is a, a really key point for your audience, is a lot of folks will come in with somatic testing. So they'll go and get their tumor removed and they have like foundation one or something done, Keras, one of these other ones. And they find that they have a VHL mutation in their kidney tumor, which is obviously we know, you know, one of the fundamental events of clear cell. So often patients will get confused. They think, oh, do I have VHL syndrome? Because they'll Google it and say, oh, VHL, and they'll find this whole disease. So what's happening now more and more is urologists are having to explain to patients, no, no, that was on your tumor, not on your blood or your saliva. And so you have to uh, kind of educate them on that. So I think it is important for urologists to understand what you're, what kind of information you're getting from a tumor report versus what you're getting from a germline testing. 
Yeah. And maybe if we've got some time towards the end, I'd love to dig in on who, when, what somatic testing you're getting. I think we've got a good sense of, you know, some of the critical elements of the family history, cancer family history, non-oncologic family history, physical exam. And, you know, again, admittedly, I'm not, you know, doing a scrotal exam on everybody that walks in. I'm not looking for, you know, I'm not doing like a retinal exam, for instance. You know, what what's the bare minimum, you know, flank mass, caput medusa? You know, is there anything focused towards these syndromic conditions? So, um, you know, I think from your classic triad, flank mass is one of them. Uh, in this day and age, I think it's less likely that you would palpate a flank mass for, for your average person that walks in the door. But uh, that being said, I think that the, uh, the physical exam is uh, just as pertinent to the intake as the history would be um, when, when soliciting any sort of suspicion for a hereditary syndrome in patients. You know, I think a quick and easy test uh, to look at for a urologist to do a physical exam would be um, honestly a cutaneous exam. We know that a number of these syndromes have cutaneous associations, whether they're fibrofolliculomas of the head and neck, uh, in the case of Berthogs Bay, whether they're these painful cutaneous uh, lyomyomas, which are seen in HLRCC, or some of the findings that are with uh, even tuber sclerosis complex. These would be things like facial angiofibromas, hypopigmentation, cafe lace spots, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that that's one of the interesting things, in my opinion, with these hereditary RCC syndromes is that many of them seem to have some unique cutaneous manifestations. And I think that could be a very easy place to start. And many of the uh, manifestations may be in easily identifiable places like the head and the neck and the face around the nasal folds. And like you said, we're not necessarily doing testicular examinations on everybody to, to solicit epididymal cystadenomas. Uh, but I think that if, if you have enough suspicion that there could be something syndromic going on, then, you know, there may not be harm to try and do a more extended physical exam rather than a focused one. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think you should be looking at the skin of your patients and especially, you know, younger folks or people that have histories. That should be part of your, I certainly don't do a skin exam on everyone that walks through my door, but if, if you're starting to get a feeling or there's something not right about it, or they're young, especially, you know, that's, a, it's a really good, obvious way to, to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So Ari, you mentioned earlier founders, you know, so I'll just share an example. Young guy, 42 years old, came in to see me the other day, four centimeter left upper pole mass, fairly consistent on MRI with clear cell carcinoma. And, you know, am I thinking germline testing at this point? Do I tell him, hey, you know, we'll probably get this and it could have some implications for you and your children. Some practical considerations, you know, do you start the process now? Do you wait for pathology? And how do you start kind of bringing up the discussion? And, and what's kind of tipping you off for it? You know, what are the things on imaging and patient characteristics? So that's, that's a great, I mean, it's a great scenario and a common scenario. And it's actually an area of controversy right now. So I'll just give it some context and some backup for a second. So the question is really, do you screen your young patients, for example, without, you know, other things other than a kidney tumor for, you know, genetic syndrome? And the answer to that is right now, yes, it's in the guidelines. If you look at the NCCN, they say people under 46 should get genetic testing if they have a kidney tumor. That's based on a pretty nicely done study from Brian Shuck when he was at the NCI and they looked at, they compared SEER Medicare data with NCI data in terms of the, the median age of kidney tumors. So the NCI had a familial population and the SEER is, you know, your run of the mill patient. And so the median age in SEER was 66, the median age in the NCI was around 30. So they came up with this like 45 based on some statistical modeling. And that sort of has become the gold standard for, you know, the age cutoff, which is really kind of arbitrary. 
So I was just at this uh, think tank white paper kind of thing at one of our kidney cancer meetings with a bunch of people that are interested in germline. And there was a, a real debate. They had a survey that was conducted before the meeting about, do you think that those patients, all comers, should get genetic testing? And should that be histology dependent? Should that have any other implications? And there was a real split amongst people, even that, that are kind of quote unquote experts in the field about this question. And that's largely because there's really limited data on the utility of that. So if you take a, an average patient that's in their 30s or 40s that has a clear cell renal cell carcinoma without any family history, without any other manifestations, single tumor, our own data found 0% of those patients having a kidney cancer associated gene when we did that. We just published that last year in urologic, European Urologic Ecology. When we looked at all genes, not just kidney cancer genes, we found about 9%, but they were a lot of those were what we call VUS as variants of unknown significance. So they probably were nothing. They're probably just kind of true, true and unrelated. So although I do send these patients for genetic testing, I tell them that for the most part, we don't find much. Now, if you have a patient with non-clear cell histology, like a bad unclassified papillary, tigrate papillary tumor or something, an oncocytic tumor with the loss of SDH, B, for example, or something like that, then you're much more likely to find something. And those are typically younger patients anyway. But the average patient that's young with a clear cell renal cell carcinoma, we have not found anything. And I think a lot of others are kind of echoing that. It's still in the guidelines. I still refer them. The insurance companies will typically pay for it. And most patients are fine with doing it. But it is something to, to be aware of. So I do send them. And then in terms of who sends it, I'm a kidney cancer focused person. So I do send them. I think it's unrealistic that most of us, most urologists will, unless they're comfortable interpreting some of that data, but having a good genetic counselor that you refer patients to, I think is helpful in that context. And we typically are just recommending focused panels of genes, you know, eight or nine or 10 gene testing as opposed to kind of all germline gene testing. All right. I'm going to kind of offer a couple of thoughts here. So I think, you know, at some point in the future, particularly for folks coming through training, given the rapid expansion of indications for germline testing, it's not going to be feasible to have a medical geneticist see all these patients. So I think this is going to be a part of it. We've got to start familiarizing. And I actually went from a scenario where everybody that had an indication went to genetics to ordering myself. And it can be a little intimidating at first. You know, I, I kind of broadly think of these in four categories, nothing identified, which is easy. You're good to go. That's about 80% of the time. Variants of unknown significance, as you mentioned, which are generally not going to be found to be anything pathologic. If they are important, the company is going to tell you about it so you can counsel the patients about implications for themselves and their family. Then you have likely pathogenic variants. Those folks are, you know, maybe eight, 10%. Those are going to see the medical geneticist to learn about that. Is that kind of how you? approach this, Ari, or NARMS for that matter? I'm happy to take a step to give you my thoughts and, and kind of my practice as well. So I think in large part, it also depends a bit on sort of the institutional resources and infrastructural setup that you have. And we just happen to be sort of blessed here with, with having a great genetics counseling team and, and a great relationship that we have formed with them. You know, like, like you were alluding to, there can be implications of finding certain things on genetic testing that you may not uh, have necessarily anticipated. And sometimes that leaves you with a question of, well, what do we do next with this data? And sometimes these companies will provide that 
to you. But then um, if you've ordered the testing, that responsibility then falls on your shoulders to make a, a sort of the relevant interpretation of those findings uh, with which sometimes you're not fully comfortable or, or fully aware of what they may mean outside of the scope of your practice. Again, in, in the way that I've sort of handled it has largely been to maintain a low threshold for patients in whom I have suspicion, usually NCCN guideline-based approaches, so age certainly being a pri primary driver for who I refer, but certainly also those with bilateral multifocality, uh, multiple first or second degree relatives with RCC or other traits uh, that are suggestive. But then at, at the end of the day, I think our genetics counselors have the ability to counsel patients more extensively on the risks and benefits um, and obtaining consent to go forward with genetic testing. But then on the back end also, they not just run the test, but also provide the support, sometimes psychosocial and other aspects, risk counseling, education, addressing unexpected findings that may come up with these tests. And, and I think that they're a great resource for that reason, since that's what they do. So that's how, that's the relationship that we've sort of built here and, and the way that I uh, typically would refer patients for genetic screening. Yeah, I would echo that. So I think the urologist can be the person that can triage. So you can, you know, identify, you know, if you see stuff, you refer, especially if it's a complex syndrome like VHL, where they need to see an ophthalmologist regularly, they need to get brain imaging periodically. They, there's a lot that's involved that the urologists just don't either don't know or don't have time to manage. And that's where genetic counselors are really critical. The interpretation of VUSs can be confusing, especially if it's in the gene of interest, for example, sometimes it can be very hard to interpret. So that's a scenario where also you may want to refer to a genetic counselor because it's just, you know, how do I interpret that? And if it's negative, then you're good. So I think there you can be the first step. It's not complicated to do that. And I think there are increasing guidelines or increasing opportunities this podcast will be helpful for people, I think, but they'll, they'll recognize the way of kind of being helpful. And as you say, more and more people are going to be getting, you know, genetic testing as a, as a standard of care. And you're going to be forced to be dealing with this one way or the other. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. It's complicated. It's worthy of a real discussion, you know, insurability, cost, downstream implications, cascade testing, responsibility, and Without kind of belaboring this, you know, it's not, I would love to talk to every patient about PSA screening before they got a PSA test is totally non-reasonable. Maybe there's some kind of corollaries here. What I've done, and I'm happy to share with anybody that would like to reach out, is I actually developed a dot phrase. It's called dot AB germline. And it says, if your genetic testing is negative, this is what it means. If you show a variant of unknown significance, we're happy to set you up with our genetic counselors. If it's pathogenic, you're going to see one of our genetic counselors. I get an Invitae test. I have no vested interest. It's just one I'm familiar with. I order it. My team reflex sends out that dot phrase. And if there is something, you know, we've got kind of a pathway. And it was co-developed with our um, medical genetics folks. All right. So, you know, just back to this patient. So, Nermesh, you mentioned bilateral tumors, multifocal tumors. Are those reflex kind of candidates, regardless of age, dependent on age? Yeah, I certainly do um, refer patients, even regardless of age. We don't necessarily know the trajectory of when these initially develop. And so many patients may walk in the door and let's say they're 55 and uh, they happen to have multifocal bilateral tumors. To me, that's that's a, a prompt to, to have that person go. And I usually await uh, some sort of a pathologic confirmation just because I think that can sometimes be helpful. Although I know that there's some there's ongoing discussion as to whether or not that's uh, really necessary, but I think that that can be helpful unless I think that the upfront genetic screening can necessarily impact the pathway that we sort of follow. Ari, for you? Yes. Yeah, I would agree. And I think one of the things that we're learning now more and more is we're finding a much broader spectrum of who has germline 
genetic kidney cancer. And that's because, you know, again, there was an inherent bias for all the families that presented. They were the extremes. So that's what the NCI picked up. That's what everyone learned about in medical school and residency, the extreme families with a lot of manifestations at young ages. And as we test more patients, we're starting to see that the, the just like with Lynch or with anything else, there's a broader range of when this occurs. I've, I've diagnosed people in their 60s and 70s with TSC, with VHL, with HPRCC. All these things can happen at time points that are really confusing. And the flip side is also super interesting when, you know, I've had, I've had a couple of patients where they have crazy histories of multifocal papillary tumors, for example. Uh, I have a patient I operated on and even maybe even with you, I just, I don't remember, but his brother and his sister both have them and we tested them nothing we can find. So right now, you know, those are interesting patients that they're following. They're doing, there's a study here to kind of do more deeper, broader sequencing of these families where we don't have an obvious gene. But I think it's really worth sending those patients, plugging them in and then screening their families. Even if you don't find something, I think it can often be helpful if they have truly like syndromic appearing kidney cancer. Part of the reason I've had a couple of scenarios, young patients that I was kind of suspicious, took them to surgery Imaging didn't suggest anything kind of particularly atypical. And, you know, lo and behold, they come back as having some rather re aggressive variant. And there's a young girl I operated on, did a partial nephrectomy, negative margin. Her nodes just looked a little bit, a little bit unusual. And I sampled them. And sure enough, she had a uh, kind of papillary type 2 histology. And then I actually went back and did an RPLND. And thank God she's about two years out. But maybe if I'd have known that, like from the get-go, I might have done an RPL and D, or maybe, you know, there are certain histologies where I would have considered a radical versus partial nephrectomy. I know we're getting kind of into the relatively less common scenarios, but any thoughts or opinions on that? Yeah, I, I think, uh, Aditya, you're, you're sort of uh, alluding to this concept of precision surgery uh, as it pertains to hereditary RCC syndromes and, and renal tumors in general. And, and this concept, uh, I guess, would be predicated on whether we're able to utilize pretest probability information about a tumor, whether that come from simply just histologic information from a biopsy or whether it come from germline testing up front, for example, and taking that information to help guide what type of an approach we would utilize for patients. In some cases, that may be multimodal now that we have, for example, belzutifan uh, approved in the setting of VHL. But I think that having that information up front, uh, if we were to know, for example, in the case that you had that index patient that you had mentioned, known that there was a stronger inclination to think that that patient may have had HLRCC, then I think that going into the operation that would have likely prompted going in with the idea of undertaking a wide uh, resection with possibly doing the lymphadenectomy at the same setting, or at least maintaining a low threshold to do the lymphadenectomy versus a patient in whom you suspect BHD. At Berthog Bay, uh, you know, those tumors tend to be more likely on the oncocytic end of the spectrum. And if you kind of go in with that mentality, you may potentially either get more information like a Sestamibi scan, which can tell you that it's more likely to be a benign oncocytoma. And maybe those are patients you don't even need to operate on or try to really just take an approach where you're enucleating tumors, maybe being selective about which tumors you remove and really trying to aim for nephron sparing. Yeah, I think that's a great comment. And there are some purists that say that everyone should be biopsied, regardless of whether you're, you're suspicious and make your decisions based on that. Sort of an extreme scenario. Most of us don't do that. Most of us will biopsy as needed. I think the questions will be, you know, if you have someone that comes into your office with 
strong family history and the and you know especially if it's your concern for HLRCC, should your surgical approach be different? I think we all tend to be more concerned in that in that particular scenario. And I, I do agree that you have a lower threshold for lymphadenectomy, although it's not entirely clear that you're curing those patients. Although, you know, you, you had a great example, but I have probably 10 to the contrary where you're going to take the nodes out and they still are recurring all over the place. But I think it's still a moving target. And that was another scenario that was brought up in this think tank where we had said, should everyone get biopsies done or at least germline testing if you're suspicious or should you wait for a tissue? I think most of us still will wait for tissue, but I think if there's scenarios where there's multifocal, you know, you're worried about renal functional preservation, watching those patients, tissue might be helpful. And I think that's uh, another point we could talk about if you want a ditch about observing multifocal masses and if they have a difference by their syndrome. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of fits in quite nicely for the personalized care paradigm that Nermesh alluded to it. And really, you covered a lot of the things that I had kind of jotted down in the out outline, guys, in those last two comments. So it does seem like, you know, it, it can potentially impact, you know, this is, again, as it stands, going to be relatively lesser frequency occurrences where sure. we're really making these decisions. And because of the rarity of these tumors, there's no high quality data that really indicates whether a lymph node dissection or a partial versus an enucleation or a radical versus a partial is better. It's all clearly expert opinion. So we're getting the genetic testing. We've kind of got our, let's say, straightforward criteria, age, multifocality, bilateral tumors. And, you know, the patient asks you, you've explained to them that, you know, here's why we're doing it. The patient asks you, you know, is there any potential benefit to me? How do you respond to that? So historically, the answer was no, it's all about the family. I mean, obviously, you know, it can impact them by finding an earlier retinal angioma and, and dealing with it before it becomes a major issue on their vision, for example. But I think what we've seen now, very excitingly, is is the notion that knowing that you're a VHL patient, you, you're eligible to get belzutifan now, which is the HIF2 inhibitor, which is a, a game changer, in my opinion, for VHL patients. So that potentially they're family members. So, you know, knowing if you have a germline mutation and knowing that it would open you up to a drug that could certainly prolong your life and, and preserve your nephrons and spare you the morbidity of all these other manifestations, I think that's a huge win. So I do specifically mention that notion, especially if I'm suspicious for VHL in those patients. I think that's been a real, real amazing advance. And for those of you not familiar, Belzutifan was approved by, you know, based on work uh, led by MD Anderson, but, other, you know, multi-center effort on patients with VHL showing a, a massive reduction in tumor size from patients with multifocal VHL, high response rate, stability of disease, but also a really strong response rates in non-kidney manifestations. So huge benefits for the eyes, huge benefits for the brain, huge benefits for pancreatic cysts. So all these things that were causing problems for these patients and morbidity are being treated by a very, very safe and well-tolerated drug, very minimal side effects compared to other systemic therapies that we give. So I think that in one scenario is very, very impactful. Sounds very familiar to some of the immune modulators, tacrolimus, severolimus for TSC. Exactly. Very similar. And the concept, I think, is similar where if you take them off, they probably will bounce back. So there is some issues, but I do think it's going to be a benefit for a lot of patients going forward. And, you know, the, the problem with everolimus and TSC is that there is a, you know, a high rate of stomatitis, which is this like very nasty inflammatory, like lesions inside the mouth 
And it was dose limiting for a lot of folks. And it's also teratogenic. It has all these issues for, for people that get TSC. Whereas, you know, the Belzutifan really just gives you this on-target anemia in some patients. It's an oral pill. It's very well tolerated for most folks and they have very little side effects. So I think we're going to see that more and more and potentially even in the sporadic setting, we'll see. I mean, there's ongoing trials now in the metastatic setting, but I can imagine scenarios where you might be able to utilize that kind of drug and downsizing tumors for maybe partial nephrectomy or something. Who knows, you know? And I'll, I'll just add on to that. I think classically, we've tended to view these hereditary um, RCC syndromes as being predominantly surgically managed. And, you know, over time, these patients may be subjected to um, either issues related to technical difficulties with reoperative approaches, potential loss of a renal unit at some point in their trajectory of their disease course, potential need for dialysis at some point down the road if, if it ends up coming to that. And, uh, you know, the classic threshold that has been described by the NIH and has, has been sort of many cases still used has been the three centimeter sort of threshold for the dominant tumor that's predominantly derived from VHL patients. But then those guidelines aren't necessarily as clear cut for some of the other syndromes as well. Like Ari was saying, I agree. I think Belzutifan is, is a game changer. Um, it's an opportunity to introduce a multidisciplinary or multimodal approach to approaching these patients, some of whom may be too comorbid or would have a much lower threshold for a radical conversion. And so if you are able to get away with shrinking their tumors and perhaps facilitating a local treatment of their tumors, then I think that I would consider that to be a win. But likewise, to your initial question, Aditya, about what is sort of the impact of, of germline testing to me, if we can determine you know, a specific syndrome, that may even impact the types of thresholds that we utilize to intervene on patients. Um, for example, like I was mentioning earlier, even though uh, metastatic RCC is the concern that would arise for uh, tumors with VHL patients if, if they're continued to watch beyond a certain threshold, that may not be the case for, for example, again, Berthog de Bay where, or even H, uh, HPRC, see where uh, you have papillary type 1 or traditionally referred to as papillary type 1 tumors or, or chromophobe type tumors that are not necessarily as likely to metastasize and perhaps you can have a longer duration of time for which you watch those patients. It also opens opportunities to, well, research opportunities to uh, look into novel ways to either diagnose or image these patients, but also potentially integrate other forms of therapy. You know, you mentioned everolimus, for example, for TSC patients. You know, another drawback is once you stop the drug, then those patients, uh, the, the AML is likely to eventually grow back to its initial size or even larger. And so then the question is, um, you know, by exposing these patients to the drug, what is the perceived benefit? Is it predominantly for downsizing to help with surgical treatment? And so, so I think that taking a thoughtful approach as to you know, what would be the stepwise management in each individual case can be information that we can glean from uh, genetic testing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I can speak on all of our behalves that the sophistication and personalization of the management of this has really exploded over the course of our time as urologists. I mean, it used to be watch it, then cut it out, then cut it out again, then cut it out again, then cut out the kidney. And then, you know, you're kind of out of options. But now, targeted therapies to shrink, active surveillance, ablation, maybe SBRT kind of as a newer mo modality is really going to lead to this multidisciplinary care. We haven't touched on IO and kind of the impact of that. But for the, you know, I think this knowledge, you know, for the more benign histologies, the oncocytomas, the hereditary RCCs, you know, if you get in there and you happen to see a tumor studded with kidneys, like a kidney studded with tumors, send off a path and it 
know, frozen, if it's papillary, that is not the kidney you want to take out. That's, you know, nearly certainly going to be indolent. So I absolutely think it's very, very exciting and also critical to have expertise and experience. You know, we always hear about high volume center, centralization of care for conditions. But to me, it becomes obvious you want people that think about this quite a bit. Yeah, and I think it's a great point. And, you know, sometimes you get these scenarios where you see a patient with multifocal tumors and they have compromised renal function and you know you have to do a nephrectomy or they have big tumors. At least a lot of the nephrons will be lost. Those are patients that you can biopsy. You should feel nothing wrong about doing that, risk stratifying them. Maybe they have a type of cancer that would be targetable. And you mentioned valzutifan. There's also data on MET inhibitors in patients with HPRCC, very rare condition. So you're not going to see it very often. But there are alternative strategies. And the same applies for massive AMLs and patients with TSC. And they, you know, they may need something done surgically. Giving an mTOR inhibitor in collaboration with a medical oncologist can be quite powerful strategy. So these are people you should, you know, should not be concerned about referring to colleagues or getting advice. They can be complicated to manage. Uh, you want to have a medical oncologist or a pathologist that's attuned to it as well. And if you have a patient that you're suspicious and the pathologist has given you some kind of wishy-washy high-grade report, but they can't say what it is, you know, encourage them to send it out to a place that does uh, has a lot of familiarity with this so you can make that diagnosis or send the germline yourself to make it if you're suspicious enough. So nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I think that really captures how important just being suspicious, being cognizant can be. It's not just a... This could impact your family members or impact how you're screened for other conditions, but this could really impact your treatment. And, you know, again, going back to like a prostate analogy, you know, like bracket mutations and sensitivity to lap rib, you know, we're going to start seeing this more and more. Maybe as we, you know, approach an hour or so, a little bit about tumor sequencing. So we've talked about germline. So these are, you know, testing all cells in your body, cancer cells, non-cancer cells that maybe predispose you to developing tumors. When, if at all, outside of kind of research purposes, are you all obtaining tumor testing? The things to sort of bear in mind are that, uh, you know, the tumor sequencing isn't always free. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think in large part, most of the somatic uh, sequencing that I'm doing has been largely for investigational or research purposes, more so than necessarily directing care. Although uh, I will say that as our paradigm of, of this precision oncology concept emerges and evolves, you know, when thinking about trying to really individualized treatment plans and, and perhaps uh, devise a more targeted approach to managing patients, whether it be in an adjuvant fashion, whether it be in the fashion of metastatic treatment. It's very plausible that molecular analysis of tumors uh, will play an increasing role. It may come in the form of somatic mutation testing, but it also may come in the form of also disentangling the transcriptome, transcriptomic environment, uh, for example, and getting a sense of on multiple levels, uh, you know, what sort of therapies may benefit this patient, uh, if any. You know, we've been doing here things like um, assessing the CPS score or PDL1 staining um, through IHC, relatively low cost, but, you know, arguable as to whether or not, you know, what the degree of clinical information one can get when thinking about treatments that would be relevant thereafter. Um, you know, we don't always do things like BAP1 or PBRM1 testing on these on these tumors. Um, sometimes there can be prognostic information that you can glean from those. But at the present, we don't necessarily have directed therapies that would be influenced by that information. But who's to say five, 10 years down the road that that, that uh, paradigm may be very well affected by sequencing? Yeah, I would, I would add. So for localized disease and kidney cancer, we've seen very limited value. We collected for a long time here doing kind of broad 
MSK Impact, which is our own somatic testing panel that we've developed here. But you know, we published a paper a couple of years ago looking at whether that had any impact, and it really didn't in terms of the localized disease. We are doing it as, as a standard in uh, advanced disease patients that are going on trials, just as, as like an initiative for research purposes, and to just gather more data, as, as Nirmish mentioned. And this is something that also came up in the in this consortium meeting about the role of germ, uh, about somatic testing. And I think everyone kind of said, well, we don't know yet if it's going to have value. So right now, it's not directing therapies. I tell patients it's not going to determine what drug you get. It's not going to determine how likely you are necessarily to respond to a specific drug. But it may have some value down the road, and it may be prognostic. They're generally not predictive, at least from a mutational standpoint. So I, I'm upfront with patients. If they want to do it, we're supportive of them doing it. I explain to them that it's not going to affect my management or their management one way or the other. I think there may be a time when we get enough information and, and as these larger data sets emerge that we might be able to further select patients for, let's say, adjuvant therapy. You have a real high-risk tumor. You have beyond just the clinical pathologic features, you also have a BAP1 mutation or something else. You might say, okay, that patient's super high risk. I'm really going to target them for drugs, but not necessarily a specific drug, just, you know, for adjuvant therapy in general. So, you know, I think there's still more to gain from it, it but we're not certainly not a lung cancer or breast cancer or a colon cancer where you have a clear target with a drug that matches, or bladder cancer for that matter, where you have a clear target of a drug for a mutation. That's just not what kidney cancer is all about. Rare exceptions in these high-grade unclassified tumors, we do send those. We have seen weird things like ALK translocations that can that are targetable. You can have these really weird things that occur in those settings, but that's extremely rare. Most of us will never see them in our practice, or maybe once once in a blue moon. And those we do send, and we have found some targets. But in general, localized clear cell chromophobe papillary tumor, you're not going to find anything to do anything about. Yeah. And I think, you know, for these, it's really not kind of within the scope of this talk, but you both have done pretty amazing work on tumor microenvironment and, you know, really distilling down or likely responders, not responders. I mean, Nermesh, even in some of the work you've done on, you know, why certain tumors behave a certain way when they metastasize some of the pancreatic work, it's incredibly interesting. And, you know, there's there's small slivers, perhaps. I mean, I can envision a day where you have your high-risk localized cancer, you get your NGS panel, then you have a bespoke PCR-based panel, you're looking for MRD, and those are the patients that are going to benefit from additional therapy. But, I mean, we're, we're kind of, I guess, in our infancy in many ways, but the future is bright, I feel like. Definitely. And I think we're going to, we're almost out of time here, but I would add that, you know, there are, in the works now, there are a few trials in kidney cancer that are sort of trying to become precision-based on tumor sequencing, typically, you know, RNA panels, uh, you know, looking at the microenvironment, angiogenesis and T-effector signaling and myeloid. And they're trying to determine first-line therapy based on that. So there's a trial in Vanderbilt that's kind of going on right now to do that. And I think others are going to do that. So you're going to start seeing, I think, these in kidney cancer, but probably not mutationally driven. And like you said, the microenvironment will be a key determinant. And whether you can distill that down to some slides or something that's more cost-effective, more more broadly applicable, I think will be will be where the future's at. And, and just to sort of piggyback, uh, you know, I, I think it's Interesting if you take a step back and look at kind of the the therapeutic eras that have defined uh, the treatment for metastatic RCC, uh, you know, much of the 2000s were dominated by this targeted therapy era that were based on what we have learned biologically about the way RCC pathogenesis itself evolves. And I think um, certainly in the last five years, the pendulum had largely swung towards the the sort of perceived benefits of immune checkpoint inhibition. We know that RCC is an immunogenic malignancy. We've seen its benefits in other types of immunogenic malignancies as well. But 
we're now seeing unprecedented uh, response rates to this, but it's not necessarily targeted to a specific pathway or mutation, but rather, um, like Ari was saying, a reliance on uh, this, this the concept of what the immune microenvironment looks like and, and whether that may be a clue as to who would be considered responders or non-responders. It's interesting that we're sort of taking an approach where we combine targeted therapies with immune checkpoint inhibitors, whether it's an additive effect, whether it's a synergistic effect. You know, belzutifan, maybe with belzutifan, the pendulum is kind of swinging again back in the other direction, but taking a more thoughtful approach, sort of knowing what we know now about the microenvironment. So I think that looking at this lens, not just through somatic mutations alone, but sort of thinking about the whole picture on, on a phenotypic level, on a transcriptomic level, perhaps even on a metabolic level, will be important clues to what define the next era of, of how we treat these patients systemically. Well, guys, I personally have learned a lot over the course of the last 45 minutes or so. The field is evolving, you know, undoubtedly being suspicious, identifying, diagnosing, and appropriately counseling these patients can have massive implications on cascade testing, family counseling, individual counseling, and then very much it would appear on their management as well. So it's kidney cancer. It's our disease as urologists. We should be familiar with it, uh, even as it gets larger and more complex. And thanks again, Ari and Ramesh, for, for sharing your wisdom. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thanks, Yeah, Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.